0: I'm going to. It is a brick building that holds about 100 people maximum. Usually we have about 80. Uh, 14 years ago, the Air Force sent me to Exmouth Australia to work on solar telescopes. That's a whole nother kind of story. And I got to Exmouth and Exmouth has about 3,000 people. And we're going to show you a little bit later how remote it is. It is extremely remote. Uh, Exmouth uh, has never been able to hold a permanent pastor. The primary reason is money. They're small. Their members are all blue-collar workers. It's really expensive to live there, and no one really wants to live there because it's hot, and really hot, and hot. <laughs> uh, in the wintertime, it gets down to... 15, 20 degrees Celsius. In the summertime, we get up to 48. It just so happens that I grew up in Arizona in the middle of a desert, and so did my wife, and so we have the capacity to handle heat beyond that of normal mortal men. So... um, so I preached there for a couple of years. I went to Bible college before I went in the military. Uh, I, I had preached before on an interim basis, and, and I was there, and they needed somebody, and I, I preached there, and we had a fantastic relationship. And that relationship has continued for a very long time. And we, a plan began to develop, and the plan was, someday, I'm going to get to leave the military. With a pension, and because of the way the military is structured, I get to be relatively young when that happens. I will not be an old, old man when I have a pension. Can we make this work financially if I come back with a pension? Can, can that break the main barrier to be able to make this work? And the answer has been yes. So they're going to provide a house and they're going to provide utilities, and they're going to provide my pastoral expenses, and my military pension is going to cover the food and the clothing and the other bits, and it is finally going to make it financially work that we can have a pastor at Exmouth Christian Fellowship. I want to show you some of the people. Let's uh, go to the next slide. The middle one didn't come out very well. This is a um, very small construction project they did within that little brick building. They were turning part of it into a kitchen Uh, you see the guy on the right-hand side, though, that's not wearing a shirt? Usually they put their shirts on before they come in on Sunday morning, but it's not a guarantee. (laughs) Shoes are also completely optional, and about half the church surfs before they get to church. (laughs) So there's sand and whatever else, and seaweed and the hair, and that's, if you can't deal with that, you can't deal with X-Mouth Christian Fellowship. It's a little bit of a different congregation. Um. Yeah, go ahead and go to the next slide. So there's where mouth is. People say, oh, you're going to Africa. Are you going near Sydney? OK, Sydney's in the opposite corner. <laughs> everyone see that? Yeah. Every, the place everyone else wants to go is as far geographically away as humanly possible from where we are actually going. The next slide shows a picture, a close-up of the peninsula. So we're living on a peninsula. You're, we're very close to the beach. Uh, there's surfing all around there. There's a lot of diving, uh, and the primary industry is an American communication station for the Navy, and the rest of the people who live there support that uh, in various ways. But uh, there's about 12 Americans that live there permanently to work at the observatory, and that's it until we get there. Uh, go ahead and go to the next slide. So I'm trying to show you remoteness here. So Uh, You probably can't read it from there, but that little dot up on the far left corner, that's X-Mouth. Now, I didn't add that to the photograph. It was already there. This is a national picture of Australia, and X-Mouth shows up with a dot. Now, if you look over at the United States, you can see some, and if you flip to the next slide, for those of you who are more familiar with Europe, there is an idea of how big Australia is compared to where we are. Now, think about which countries get a dot in Europe. How many people are in those cities? Millions? Many millions, right? Okay, Xmouth gets a dot. It has 3,000 people. And it gets a dot. Why? Because that's all that's there. If they don't put down Xmouth, they don't get to put down anything. We're talking an area of if you put, like, the UK and Germany together, Put those two countries together, imagine that there's nine towns in that space. That's Northwest Australia. Nine towns in a space of UK and Germany put together. The biggest town isn't even 100,000 people. The smallest one is about 1,500. It is a very remote, empty space. and because of that, it's difficult to get people there to do ministry. Um, if you go to the next slide, over 20% of rural churches in Australia do not have an ordained pastor. And by the way, when I say ordained, I don't even mean have some sort of Bible degree because only about 65% of the ordained ministers have any biblical education officially of any kind. It just They don't even have an ordained person. 20%. 45% of the towns in the region, in the, in the, they're sharing. So it's three or more churches for one guy that travels. Now, looking at those distances, how far is he traveling? Well, he's doing one service at 6 and another one at noon and another one at 6 at night because that's how far apart these places are. And then 20% of these, church, uh, of these rural ministers are handling two churches. That means there's 15% that have their own pastor. It's not the same situation we're used to. And so when people say, what do you mean you're a missionary to Australia? Why would you need to be a... Well, that's why. <laughs> that's why. There's not enough people willing and ready to do ministry in these, in these regions. There's just not enough. It's, it's a huge shortage of, of ministry people. And this is what we're called to do. Um, and so I have, I have a dream. I have a dream. I have a dream. I have a dream not just to be able to minister to this church, but I have a dream of being able to travel and encourage all of these lay people that are doing the job on their own because they're tired. I know the lay people from my church that I'm going to, they've been at this for the last seven years without anybody permanent. And they all have regular jobs. And they all have regular families. And they all have regular everything. And they are so ready for us to get there. And they're going to just go, and rightly so, because they are wiped out. They are tired. And so one of the dreams that we have is that I'd be able to get enough money to do some traveling, um, and support these other churches and just get to know them and, and let them dump on me and whatever. So, uh, so our purposes are two. One is, is for me to be the pastor there and the second is to be able to help other folks. And so here's some of our prayer requests. Now that first one, we got a huge praise on Monday. Um, the, the visa that we wanted, we got one better And it's been approved by the government. And so now in 90 days, I just need to put my application in. And so in two years, we're going to be on track for permanent residency. That's not the same thing as citizenship. Um, But it it makes things a lot easier. It means we don't have to worry about visas again, ever, which is really what we're hoping for here, is is to not have to deal with that. Um, Coordination of my military retirement. Yeah, so... uh, Retiring from the military has its own challenges. Usually, you're doing those kind of in an isolated fashion. I'm just stacking a whole bunch of other difficulty levels on top of that by having to worry about how I'm going to ship my own stuff to another country on the other side of the world, and et cetera, plane tickets, yada, yada, so just that it all works together. Expectation management, um, did I mention they were really excited for us to get there? So. You know how this goes. So we, uh, two years ago is when we first went there and proposed this idea. Two years ago is when they called us. They've had two years to imagine how good it's going to be for us to get there. That's kind of a bad thing. They've had a lot of time to to imagine and to daydream and go, oh, when Keith and Cheryl get here, it's going to be like this. We're not superheroes and it's not going to be perfect and I've tried to warn them about this. And so um, just this reality check that we're going to get there, and they're really going to want everything to be great, and it's going to take time. Um, I'm going to go back to school while I'm there. I I do want to finish my seminary degree. I do want to finish a Master's of Divinities. I do not have that yet, and I want to be able to do that while I'm there. I'm going to do it through Liberty University Online. And, of course, this traveling ministry that I want to do is a secondary thing and it has more moving parts, and I'm not sure how I'm going to do it yet. So, uh, as time goes on and we, we get ourselves established at the church, then this traveling bet's going to have to come into place. And here's where it gets weird. Go ahead. That my depression would not interfere with my ministry. How's that one? So, I have clinical depression. That's not something that you normally hear somebody stand up in front of a bunch of people at a podium and say, blithely. <clears throat> and I would prefer this not to uh, wreck my ministry. That really isn't on my top priority list. Uh, I have a family history of mental illness. My, several people are on constant medication. And if you go back far enough, we got folks that were institutionalized because of mental illness. Uh, It's genetic, it's chemical, and it's the way it is. Uh, I've struggled with serious bouts of depression about three times in my life. And when I mean serious, I mean for over a year at a time and pretty dark. Uh, And I struggle with minor bouts of depression from time to time. But I want to help you understand this for a couple reasons. One is, if I want you to pray for me on this, you need to understand what it is I'm talking about, first of all. Second of all, it's not something we talk about as a group much, and so I feel as if there's a lot of misconceptions as to what depression is and what it isn't and how it works. So let me tell you a few things about myself that might seem to you to not go with the idea that I fight depression. Uh, I'm an optimist. Uh, I'm not overly fearful of stuff. I don't have a long list of phobias or anxieties. Um, I'm generally content. Uh, I, I like my family. I like my job. I like where we live. I like my church. Um... I'm hopeful for the future. I have dreams for the future. I have aspired to to accomplish things in the future. I am excited about what we're doing next. I have interests and I have hobbies. Uh, I have a so- strong social network of friends. Um, I, over the years, have had good physical exercise very regularly, as you might imagine, being a member of the military. Um, and... and I have hobbies and things I care about and things that I do. And so, if you looked at my profile and said, is this guy doing the things that you would expect a person to do to be mentally healthy, I check like 90% of the boxes. Here's the problem. None of that changes the internal body chemistry that gets screwed up that causes the problem. What I experience isn't due to the fact that I have a bunch of bad mental habits. What I experience is because the chemicals in my body get messed up and I have to deal with that. So what does that feel like when it happens to me? Look, depression for me isn't sadness, which is what a lot of people think it is. Depression is more like numbness. It's like somebody took all my emotions and took the the dial and went down to zero. It's hard to feel excited. It's hard to be energetic about getting up in the morning. It's hard to muster the energy to accomplish a task. It's also hard to be sad. It's hard to be angry. It's hard to care about the outcome of a decision. It's hard because all of the emotional energy that is typical for a person accomplishing other of these things has been turned way down. That's what I experience. That's what I have to fight. That's what I have to deal with. Um, So those are the emotional bits. It also has some cognitive effects. One is my memory goes to crap. i use that word crap again. Did that a couple times ago. My memory goes bad. Thank you, I'm glad. Forgiveness, I can feel it, I can feel it. My memory gets really bad. I don't have the best memory already, but it really, really gets bad if, I'm in, if I have bad depression going on. I mean, it's horrible. The other problem is my sense of focus. So I know that this has probably happened to everybody, but you've you got a list of phone numbers and you're trying to dial it on the phone and you get halfway through the number and then you look back and you can't find your place and you end up having to start over again. I don't know if that's ever happened to you. Okay. It happens to me so bad that I'm almost to tears. I'm sitting there at my desk praying, God, if you could just let me finish this phone call. Because I can't remember the number long enough to get it over here, and then when I look back, all the numbers jumble up again, and I can't find the one that I was working on. And it's it's stupid. It's the simplest task, and yet my ability to focus and see what's going on and move it is gone. So there are cognitive effects that happened to me when this chemical balance really gets whacked out? And then this leads to social and spiritual effects. Almost every person I've ever known that suffered from some sort of mental illness, see, I just use that word, mental illness. I have a mental illness. Almost every person I've ever talked to, their mental illness has eventually led to guilt. Why? because it's eventually going to affect your behavior. It's eventually going to affect what you do. And we feel guilty when we don't perform the standard. We feel guilty when we let people down. We feel guilty when I said I would do this and then it doesn't end up happening. When we break our promises. And guilt affects us spiritually. Um... And socially, because it makes us feel awkward. See, I'd, I, I loved seeing you before, but I really messed something up over the last week, and I know it was my fault. I know it was my fault. It wasn't you. It was me. And now I don't want to see you. Why? Because I let you down. I know I let you down. And so whereas two weeks ago I would have been happy, happy to see you, now I'm avoiding you. Why? Because I know I let you down. And I hate it. And so, what starts out as an emotional problem becomes a cognitive problem, and the cognitive problem becomes a behavior that you do, and, and those behaviors don't improve your life. And so, we come to Romans chapter 7, verses 15 through 24 which I relate to in a slightly different way than perhaps the author intended. I don't know. The context, of course, of Romans when Paul is talking, Paul, the book of Romans is a very theological book. Paul has been talking about the law going back and forth for most of the book. He's talking about how he doesn't measure up to the standard. We'll read it. For that which I am doing, I, know long, I do not understand. For I'm not practicing what I would like to do, but I'm doing the very thing I hate. But if I do the very thing that I do not wish to do, I agree with the law, confessing that it is good. So now no longer am I the one doing it, but sin which indwells me. For I know that nothing is good that dwells in me, that is, in my flesh, For the wishing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. For the good that I wish to do, I don't do. But I practice the very evil that I do not wish to do. But if I am doing the very thing I do not wish, I am no longer the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. I find then the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wishes to do good. For I joyfully concur with the law of God and the inner man, but I see a different law in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind, and making me a prisoner of the law of sin which is in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, on the one hand, I myself with my mind am serving the law of God, but on the other with my flesh, the law of sin. I can tell you that when I read this passage, I relate to it in a slightly different way. I feel very much that there is this thing in me that I do not like. And while I would not say that having depression is a sin, depression is an outcome of the fact that we live in a fallen, sinful world. It is part of the curse. It is part of sin. Whether or not, I'm not going to take blame for having depression. And yet it is in the realm of what is sin? What is the effects of sin on the world? And so this sin that lives in me, this brokenness, this wrongness feels like an alien. And I hate it. You know, though, you don't have to have depression to feel that way. I would hazard a guess that most of you at some point have wrestled with the sin that made you feel the same way. Whether it was lust or greed or anxiety or unforgiveness. Our sin is there. You know, I love the fact that the person who wrote this also wrote most of the New Testament. Is there anybody here who would like to paint Paul as a failure in the faith? Not me. Paul was a hero. Paul went where nobody else went. He encountered danger and he encountered Difficulty and he endured prison and he started churches, and Paul was a spiritual superhero. And what does Paul, the spiritual superhero, say? I struggle so bad, wretched man that I am. I hate this. That is awesome. It's awesome because I relate to Paul, and he wins. Does everyone see that Paul isn't kept from his ministry because of his struggle? Paul isn't kept from doing what God intended him to do because he struggled. Paul was not defeated by the struggle, but he acknowledged the struggle. That's where I want to live. That's where I've been trying to live. That's where I hope I continue to live. It was difficult to come up with the title for the sermon. It is a very weird sermon. And so when Drew asked me, what are you going to title this? And I came up with the title. It, it was weak. And yet it's also true. This is a sermon about God's grace. In the face of weakness. If I don't have that story, I have Nothing. If I don't have God's grace taking me to X mouth, I have no business going. For multiple reasons. I could stand up here and give you pages of why I'm not the right guy to go do this. Except this is where God's sending us and this is what God wants us to do. Therefore, we are going to go. Hallelujah. Struggling with the mental illness has affected the way I heard Drew's sermons for the last month. So Drew has preached on things like choosing joy. Look, it's tough to choose joy when you feel guilty. That's hard. When you say, but Drew, how am I going to choose joy when it's my fault? When things aren't the way they're supposed to be and it's my fault. How do I choose joy when I'm still feeling that? It's hard. It's hard. It's hard. I need to turn my page. Guilt is a barrier to joy. Guilt is a barrier to Christian growth. Guilt is a bad barrier. Uh, psychologists in general, um, yeah, I think we're still on that slide. Uh, you know, if you, if you talk to a secular psychologist, they try to explain all of it away and make you feel guilty for nothing. Um, you know, it's not your fault that you did X because you have this condition. That's baloney. It doesn't matter why you do something that is wrong. If you did it wrong, it's your problem. You need to fix it. Um, I'm going to talk about that a little bit more, but that's why God gave us 1 John 1, 1.9, which says, if you confess your sin, he is faithful and just to forgive your sin. He gave us a simple solution to when we screw up. It's very simple. But, you know, Ball, um, Drew put up that slide last week about anxiety. And I told you I'm not usually a very anxious person, except that he'd get to certain key ones and be like, yes. Has anxiety ever kept you from performing the way you want at work or home? Not just yes, but. And there were a few others that were just like that. Like, no, 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 no. Anxiety is terrible. And, you, and we are commanded to be anxious for nothing. And when I allow what I'm going through to cause me to be anxious, it's still sin. I still have to deal with it. I know why. But knowing why doesn't mean I don't have to deal with where I'm at. So why am I telling you all of this very, very seemingly private information? Well, first of all, Because I want you to intelligently pray for me. And this is complicated. And how are you going to pray for me intelligently if you don't understand what it is I'm facing as a special barrier to being successful when I go to X-Mouth? If I don't be pretty transparent. So here I am. But I'm going to take a few moments now to do something else. It's not very often that somebody stands in front of you and says, I have a mental illness and I'm willing to talk about it. That's not very common. And so since I'm here, I'm going to talk to both, maybe you're in this room, and you struggle too. But you don't tell anybody. And maybe it's not exactly the same thing I struggle with. I have some encouragement I want to give you. Some thoughts. From somebody who's there. I'm not going to say who's been there, I'm going to say someone who is there. I'm also going to talk with you about what can you do for the people in your life that are struggling with some kind of mental illness. What do you do? How do you handle them? How do you be an encouragement? How do you be part of what's right in their life instead of what's wrong in their life? So we're going to calculate those two things and then we're going to be done. Okay? All right. We're together. All right. So we're going to move on. Advice for those who struggle. First of all, just like I said with First John 9 you you've got to remove the guilt barrier. If you have done wrong, you've got to clear that. But you might get some help with, with, from someone else helping to divide your problem from your mistakes. Because it's really easy to let all that f- lump together. Remember when I said I don't take responsibility for the fact that I suffer from chemical depression, right? But I do take responsibility for the stupid stuff I do while I'm under the influence of that. I have to separate the two because if I start feeling guilty for having depression, I'm sunk because I always have depression, so, right? So uh, then I'm guilty all the time. That's bad. That's, that's like self-destruct mode right there. If I can't get away from feeling guilty about the problem, I'm going to feel guilty permanently. So have people in your life help you separate Things that you've messed up at that you need to apologize, fix, whatever, and the problem. Because the thing that's wrong, you can you can you can you can confess this. Look, I gave a really simple verse on this, and and not much because when you're struggling with the complexities of a mental illness, the last thing you need is a complex set of instructions. You need something simple to implement. Here it is. When you have messed up, confess it, get on with it. Get over it. Confess it, move on, get over it, be done. Don't just confess it to God, confess it to the person that you did it to. You've got to get that fixed as well. Once the guilt is put away, get back to choosing joy. You know, all the stuff, if you've been here for the stuff that Drew has been preaching for the last month, it's been fantastic. It's been wonderful. And he's been talking from, if you, if you haven't been here, you can go get the, the sermon notes from the internet. It is mental health good and spiritual good at the same time. But choosing joy is possible, and you can do it even if you're not doing well. Go to the next slide. Learn to live the best of what God has for you. Last week, Drew went to Philippians 4:8. so let's go do that. I'm not going to repreach Drew's entire sermon, <clears throat> but this is a fantastic verse for a person who's struggling with depression or manic depressive, or whatever they're struggling with. Philippians 4, 8. Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is a good repute, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, let your mind dwell on these things. Look, The worst thing you can do if you're suffering with depression is to think about your depression all day. Your depression doesn't fit in this category. I don't see where depression is honorable, true, pure, lovely. It's certainly not lovely. It doesn't have good repute. It's not excellent. It's not worthy of praise. It's not worthy of being dwelt on. Neither are your mistakes from last week. See that's the other thing that happens when you're struggling with a mental deal is you start playing over and over again the stupid stuff. It's not worthy. Your sin isn't worthy. Your mistakes are not true and honorable and right and pure and lovely. You are supposed to forget your sin just like God did. God forgot it. Why? He doesn't dwell on that stuff. He's moving on. You need to also Get your head off of that stuff and back onto where you're supposed to go next. And I think that's the last point, though, that I want to really bring home on this side. Some of you might be thinking, okay, Keith, you tell us that you struggle with anxiety and depression, but you're standing up there doing one of the things that most of us find to be the most anxious thing you could possibly do. And you're standing there doing it and talking about the most vulnerable thing you could possibly talk about. So how are we supposed to even believe you that you suffer anxiety when you're able to do that? Let me give you an answer to that question. This is what God has gifted me to do. If you would like an example of what God's grace and what His Holy Spirit can do in a person, I am doing it Right now. If you are wondering, if you don't know God, if you're testing this thing out, if you're wondering if this stuff is true, let me tell you, the Spirit of God is a powerful thing. And it is real. And it does things in people that they couldn't possibly do on their own. And here's the awesome, 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 awesome part of this. I can't be filled and motivated by the Holy Spirit and be depressed at the same time. His power completely blows it out of the water. It's gone. I love being up here. Why? I'm happy. My emotions are not suppressed right now. I'm I'm riled, ready to go. Why? The Holy Spirit's working in me right now. Look, if you suffer with something like this, let me tell you something. It cannot overcome the power of God. Don't ignore the calling of God in your life in the hopes that you'll get this fixed first. No. Part of getting it fixed is going and doing what God's told you and empowered you to do because you'll discover that in the process of your obedience, his spirit will completely overpower what's bothering you. That is release and joy and power. So if you are struggling or you do struggle, let me encourage you. Go and aggressively pursue whatever it is God has empowered you and spiritual gifts to do. And don't tell me that you're in a much better mood by the time you're done. I'm in a much better mood by the time I'm done. I love it. That's why I want to go do this permanently. Do you get that, right? (laughs) I can't imagine being any healthier than doing this all the time. So let's move on to the next slide. Advice for everyone else. This is a curious slide. This is my sister. My sister's name is Christy. Uh, It's pretty obvious. She's in a wheelchair. I put this slide up so that you don't feel sorry for her. Because if I just say she's in a wheelchair, everyone goes, ah, Look, she's a beautiful, successful woman with a, a child, and she drives everywhere, and she volunteers at her church, and she's a very successful person. But I'm going to explain something to you called the 8-inch rule. Or uh, for those of you, everyone else, except Americans, that would be the 20-centimeter. <laughs> everyone else, it would be the 20-centimeter curb rule. So uh, my sister plays tennis, like better than me, and she drives, uh, she rides horses, she's been skiing, um, but uh, she can't go over an eight-inch curb. She can't do it. Uh, she's, she's strong. She's probably as strong as I am, but whatever it is, she, you know, she pops up on a wheelie, she gets her front wheels up there, and she, tr- and she can't make it over eight inches. Now, if you and I were walking down the street and we encountered an 8-inch curb or a 20-centimeter curb, and then and we went over it, and then 100 yards later I said, and I said, don't turn around, don't look, was that a curb or was there a wheelchair cut out? You probably wouldn't be able to remember. Why? Because that was an obstacle so easy for you that it didn't even register in your conscious mind. That was an unconscious level obstacle. Oh, it was an obstacle. But... It required no thought, no, virtually no extra effort. But for my sister, if there was an eight-inch curb that went for two miles, that would be a two-mile wall. She couldn't get over it without help. Now, because there's a visual cue, when my sister rolls up to an eight-inch curb and she can't get over it, no one goes, oh, why don't you just get over it? No one says, why don't you try harder? No one says, well, look, it's not that hard. No one says any of those things. Why? There's a wheelchair, and you know it would be crude and crass and stupid. So what do people do? They go up and they grab the back of the chair and they lift her up, and she progresses. Here's the main problem that we have when we deal with people who have mental illness. There's no visual cue and we don't know what their 8-inch curbs are. And so they're encountering their 8-inch curb. They've run into something that they can't do. But instead of just helping them up and letting them go, we say all that other stuff. We say, why don't you just get over it? Why don't you just try harder? Come on, it isn't that hard. If you've got someone in your life that's struggling with some kind of mental illness, the most import, one of the most important things you can do is find out what their eight-inch curbs are. What is it that's difficult for them that's not difficult for you? And instead of trying to push them to get over it, just help them get over it. Just, just give them a hand. Or give them that bit of grace that's necessary to realize, I know you can't do that right now. And what's crazy is that sometimes it's the weirdest things that are an eight inch curb. For me, it can be an email. Um, if I'm struggling and I spend all week at work and my work is very email intensive, this morning I opened up my Blackberry and I had over 100 new ones since Friday. For some people, it would be more than that, but you know. So I spend all day. Opening them up. And I, n- I never know what's going to happen when I open up. You know, you open up and it might be I made a mistake. It could be there's a new task. It could be whatever. And every single one of those requires a little more emotional effort. But you see, emotional effort is difficult for me. So every single time, another little investment. Oof, 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 oof. Now I get home and there's an email. And you would not believe the amount of anxiety that hits my stomach. I can't open it. I can't open it because I've spent all day opening stuff that drained me, and here's one more. And maybe it would be good news, maybe it would be nothing, but the chance that it's yet another task, another drain, another pull, another request, and I shut down. And I walk away from the computer. And people are like, how come you don't answer your email? And how do I answer that? It's tough. I mean, I could go into an hour-long explanation, but it's difficult. Sometimes just opening an email can be my 20-centimeter curb. And yet, if I screw it up, if I miss a deadline, then I still need to apologize. I still need to make amends. Try to understand the people that you're working with and what things in their life you can help with. For me, it's my wife opening my email, and she tells me if there's something that's really important. So I don't open it at home. I let her come home, and she gets to it, and she opens it, and she'll say, hey, Keith, there's this thing you really need to get to. Now, I have a new choice, again, because she's told me that it was bad. And now I still have to ramp up and get that going and still handle it. So there's still another challenge But the first challenge of the email being opened by somebody, that's the workaround. Let's go to the next slide. So that's the eight-inch curb. Number two, if they have hurt you, let them know and let them fix it. Look, the, the most awkward place for me to be is for me to feel like I've messed up but you don't want to tell me because you're afraid of how I react and so now there's this mess up in between us and it just sits there and then the longer it sits there, the stupider it gets, right? Don't do that. If somebody has hurt you regardless of why they've hurt you, go confront them and tell them, hey, you hurt me, I understand that and I forgive you and I wanted you to know, but we're done now. Clear the air and restore the relationship. Don't let it fester. Don't forget to ask them to do things, particularly that God has gifted them to do. I kind of challenged this already, but look, remember my, the picture of my sister, so she can't go over an eight-inch curb. Here's the worst thing that you could do for Christy. Oh, don't ask her to help with the church cleanup day. She's in a wheelchair. Oh, that's not gonna make her happy. Don't ask her to help um, make the stuff for the children's Christmas play. She's in a wheelchair. Look, none of that's helping her. And she can help with all of those things. But when we decide that a person's too fragile and too breakable to, h- to ask them to do anything, we ostracize them from everything. We pull them away from society and they become isolated alone and they end up standing all by themselves and it gets worse. They need to be involved, they need to be doing, and if they make a mistake and say they can do something that they shouldn't have said yes to, then that's on them. But ask. Don't start treating people like they're fragile and they're going to break just because you find out they have a problem. And pray for them. <clears throat> you know, I've heard a lot of different things about prayer. <clears throat> about what it does and, and why we should do it, and, and how to get God to do what you want him to do, which is really kind of a bad way to look at prayer. Here's the best part about prayer to me. It's how it changes me when I pray. If I'm praying for refugees from Syria, and I'm really earnestly praying, you know what the best thing that could possibly happen to all that is? God reveals to me what I should be doing for the refugees in Syria. That's the best possible outcome. Because you know what? Until it gets to that, I'm not even involved. I'm just praying. When you pray for people who have weaknesses and troubles, whether it's physical or mental, emotional, whatever it is, you know what the best thing that can happen for you? Is that God reveals to you how to interact with them. That God reveals to you, hey, why don't you do this? Why don't you try that? Why don't you send him this note? Why don't you whatever? Because prayer really doesn't change God prayer changes us God has an awesome awesome plan I think that God answers our prayers please don't get me wrong he doesn't answer our prayers because we changed him God is constant God doesn't change he answers our prayer because he loves us and this brings us around full circle because I want you to pray for me Bring it all back together. Please do pray for us as we prepare for our new life in mouth, Pray for my wife, that she would be patient. Pray for all the little details. Pray that the rest of the visa process would go well. We're asking that. Um, pray for me, please. I am excited about the future. I didn't give this sermon because I'm desperately afraid of doing this. I'm not desperately afraid of doing this. But here's the thing. I don't want to go into this blindly either. I don't want to assume everything's going to be okay. I don't want to assume that I'm never going to struggle because I think I will. And so I've shared some pretty personal stuff in the hopes that it will reap the benefits of your prayers. If you struggle with anything, and I mean anything, it doesn't mean you're ruined. It doesn't mean that God doesn't have a plan for you. It doesn't mean that God doesn't even maybe have a huge plan for you. It means you struggle. Look, I didn't go six feet deep into the passage this morning. I took the top layer off. But the top layer says something really amazing. And here's what the top layer is. Paul, (laughs) who was a huge hero of the faith, struggled with who he was. He struggled with what he did. He struggled with his identity. And it didn't keep him from being Paul and for God doing all the amazing things that he did and Paul. And it doesn't have to stop you either. So here's what we're going to do. Well, I I'd really, I have one more thing left to say about the look, it is possible that you are in this room and you do not know Jesus Christ and you are, I don't know why you're here. I, I'm glad you are, but I don't know why. Someone must have invited you or you were curious or whatever. I have a funny story for you. You saw the picture of my sister. Uh, early in her time as a paraplegic, we were doing stuff and learning how to shoot baskets. Because it's really hard to make a basketball go from a seat to a basketball hoop when you're down that low. It's crazy how hard that is. Anyway, and she goes, man, I am so glad I'm not a quadriplegic. Those are people who can't move their arms or legs. She says, man, I'm so glad I'm not a quadriplegic. This is way okay. I can move my arms. Life is okay." Well, as it turns out, I ended up working for a quadriplegic later in my life. And I was his driver, and I fed him at restaurants, and it was an interesting job. And, uh, you know, so we're talking one day, and he says, Keith, I'm so glad I can communicate. You know, it's the people who are deaf and blind, you know those folks that are deaf and blind at the same time? He says, I can't imagine what it would be like for them. I am so glad I'm just a a quadriplegic and not one of those folks. Well, as it turns out, I had a deaf foster son early in my life, and we were going to a big, massive church thing for deaf people, which is a lot, it's really weird. It it's, sounds really weird because they're making all kinds of noises they don't know they're making, and you just have to get over that. And um, so finally, so different people are coming up and doing their testimonies, and there's an interpreter, and this person ends up going, on that is going up that is both deaf and blind. And the way they communicate is by doing sign language by holding hands. So you hold hands with someone else kind of thing and you do sign language and then they can communicate that way. It's Very difficult. You know what they said in their testimony? I am so glad I know Jesus Christ. I don't know how people do it that don't know Jesus. If you don't know Jesus you don't know what you're missing. You don't understand, you couldn't possibly understand why there's a person out there that would trade their hearing and their eyesight to keep Jesus. And if you can't understand that, then you are missing something so powerful and so amazing. It it isn't just a philosophical choice. It isn't just a story in a book. It's not... Just whether or not you decide to click into a specific belief system. Knowing Jesus Christ is a life-changing experience that, that is so amazingly powerful that there are people who would rather be deaf and blind than lose Jesus Christ. That's exactly the same way I feel about the fact that I have a mental illness. <laughs> Do not ask me whether I would trade. Never in a million years. Jesus is much more valuable. and I will endure whatever it is he calls me to endure. I would never trade. If you want to know the Jesus that does that, then come see us over here in the prayer area afterwards because we would really like to tell you about him. Number two, I am going to go over here with the rest of the prayer people on the side afterwards. And if you would like to pray for me, you're welcome to come pray for me. But number two, if you struggle with things that you haven't told anybody about, and you're like, wow, I think Keith might actually understand, you could come over and I would, could pray with you also. Maybe you would feel like I understood something you didn't expect people to understand. Thanks for listening. Thanks for hearing our dream. Um, I've never shared that with a group in my life. But it's what God told me I needed to say. So let's pray. Generally, Father, you are... You are the dispenser of grace. You've had grace on me in the past through every trouble I've had, through every struggle. You've pulled me through. You've never abandoned me. You've always been there. You're dispensing grace to me right now. Right now. You empowered me with your Holy Spirit to give a message that you had above and beyond who I am. And I love being empowered by you. Thank you. What an amazing life this is. And Lord, I thank you for the grace you're giving us for our future. That there's a plan, that there's a vision, that there is hope, that there is an exciting path, and that you have prepared it just for us. And there is so much left to do for the kingdom. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.